0: Democracy. A word derived from the Greek roots demos, meaning people, and kratia, meaning power. Together, people power. Democracy is viewed as an ideology, a governmental system, or in the words of late civil rights activist John Lewis, not as a state, but as an act, for each generation to do its part. In a democracy, the people live under the laws of their choosing. By consenting to follow those laws or acting to change them, the people's rights and freedoms are protected. To many, democracy is the sacred foundation of America. To engage in civic duty, participate in elections, and consent to policy is what it means to be an American. For these people, the words United States and democracy are nearly synonyms. To others, American democracy is not, has never been, and likely never will be. For them, the phrase, United States democracy, is a contradiction. I'm Nora Ahmed. And I'm Eliza Craig. And this is Democracy, a podcast from Themester. In this episode, Nora and I speak with Dr. Rasul Moat, professor of American Studies and Geography. Dr. Moat, would you please introduce yourself?
1: Russell Mowat, I'm a professor focusing on areas of violence, specifically racial violence in public space. That also includes an emphasis of looking at lynching history as well as what's labeled as race riots. Additionally, I teach courses around a range of things because of that topic. So uh, the legacy of lynching, teach a course on social movements, then I also teach a course on finding the wire with its discussion on looking at policing within American cities.
0: This episode covers a very difficult but necessary topic, the role of racial violence in United States democracy. It is important to note that this episode will contain mentions of horrible acts and violence. As Dr. Moat says,
1: This will not be a very hopeful conversation. So there's a lot of content and histories that we have to wrestle with and accept that comes with this sort of topic. And so I break down this sense of racial violence as a part of white supremacy into 11 categories. So think of it also as a continuum from one end to another, but also think of it as not necessarily what's tolerable, but where we can begin and to what is horrendous to even think that could be conceived. So. We'll try to go through them, um, but we have time. And so first there's coups. So a coup is when there's an overturn of government. There have been racially motivated coups within the United States. We oftentimes don't think about coups happening in the United States. We think about them elsewhere, but they have been. And so two of which that are most noted is 1898, the Wilmington race massacre and the 1906 Atlanta race riots, both resulted in a complete flipping Of elected official seats and the entire representation in the political spectrum as well as in media. So they ran people out of office that were either black in power or people who were white that were supportive of that power. In this case, we're talking about the overturn of a government at a city level. And Wilmington is important because not only is it a port city, it's one of the dominant cities in the South. The 1898 Wilmington Race Massacre was a product of the hatred and anger that many dispossessed white populations, some of which were Democrats, were feeling because there was a fusion party of radical Republicans, Populist Party, and the Black Farmers Alliance that created a unified party system that took over all elected positions from the governor's office down to the city council. And so all of a sudden in Wilmington you saw public schools You saw black businesses, you saw black newspapers, and this was enough. And so in six days, they burned down the newspaper, killed hundreds of people. But of course, we have no sort of record of truly how many. So there's an undercount. Ran many of the people straight out into the Cape Fear River and took over all those seats. If that never happened the fusion party would have taken over most of the South. Our very sense of the South would be drastically different. Inspired by Wilmington race riot to prevent that same fusion type of idea to happen, you have then the 1906 Atlanta race riot.
0: I've heard about Reconstruction and that the white response pulling troops out of the South was the end of this period of Black advancement. I've never heard of this other period that was then shut down by the race riot.
1: Think of Reconstruction and Wilmington race riots as two bookends of a bookshelf.
0: Hmm.
1: So the failure of Reconstruction not being achieved and in the Wilmington race riot closes the door. Right. So despite the failures of Reconstruction, there were still cities and states that were making the best of it, trying to do the radical change at a local level. We saw this. If you look at history in Wilmington, it was remarkable, you know, free public education for all and particularly pushed by some of the black educated class, but fully endorsed by, you know, members of the city and Wilmington thrived under this fusion party. And it's important to also note too, that with Wilmington, um, it was done by an official military arm of the Democratic Party called the Red Shirts. And one of the members was Ben Tillman, who would later become a senator for South Carolina, who threatens Theodore Roosevelt in 1901 after Theodore Roosevelt invites Booker T. Washington to dinner saying that now we're gonna to have to kill thousands of these N-words to get them back into their places by what you did, right? And then of course 1906, a line of race riot happens. So that's just
0: cool. Yeah. cool. Number
1: two. <laughs> number two is racial massacres and race riots. So think of these as widespread killings and property damage just to scare a population. So let's get into race massacres and race riots. 1921, Tulsa race riot. You know, and so we see in that where even though there are still sort of hundreds of people that are dead, of course, there's an undercount. And now they're doing the excavations as well as looking at soil samples to determine how many maybe other bodies are buried in different places. The biggest thing is we know that there's extensive property damage that occurred. Because Greenwood, which was a suburb of Tulsa, was thriving, had paved roads, theaters, and so on, primarily because of segregation. So while Tulsa was not as wealthy, these people out of their own ingenuity sort of developed a thriving community. And that is probably the basis for why they reacted to Greenwood in this particular way. So then as it gets us to three, and there's mass lynchings. Mass lynchings are similarly, in my argument, done to, in a wholesale way, tell a population to like stay in your place. And so there's many different mass lynchings. Um, There's 1862 with the Dakota Wars, roughly about 32 Dakota indigenous folk were hung by U.S. Army in Minnesota. 1864, after the passage of the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery. There were thousands of lynchings that took place in a matter of weeks, some say around 2,000. In 1871, there's a Chinese massacre, which is in Los Angeles. So this is leading into eventually the Chinese Exclusion Act 10 years later. But it was um, mass lynching of Chinese Americans. And then in 1918, the Pervena Massacre, which was in Texas, where Texas Rangers uh, publicly executed around 15 Mexicans. Now this is where there's disagreement uh, in certain cases with scholarship because is this a, a lynching? Is it not? And this is why it's important to understand that what we consider to be lynchings is so biased from our view of what was happening to black people that we don't sort of see what was happening with indigenous folk. So you can kind of think about them as mass lynchings, but they'll also get to public execution, which I'll get to. So yeah, they kind of jump
0: in like colloquially i'd say that our view of lynching you know like to kind of be graphic is like that image of like a group of white people with a hung black man and that's our image of lynching and stuff so you're kind of taking that nebulous definition of lynching and saying oh no that actually applies to a lot of other things
1: yeah and 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 technically lynching is the least of the issues right Whereas I think people invoke the term lynching because there is a sense that this is the worst like this. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying like lynching is actually number four. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So lynching specifically, uh, there is no uh, true official definition. So one of the best attempts at a definition was based upon the debates that Tuskegee research Institute and the NAACP had with each other. And out of that, comes this definition of, one, that the act of killing had to involve three or more people, because one or two is just a murder, even if it's racially motivated. The second part that has to be a part of it is that it um, has to result in uh, a death. Three it has to also be done in the name of tradition, race. There has to be some pronouncement of that in some way. Uh, and so they define in that way. And it's kind of helpful to think of lynching in that way, even though there are things that still are falsely or inappropriately labeled as lynching. So what we know of a period of 30 years, um, almost 4,500 lynchings that took place. What we know of today, about 65 to 7,000 lynchings took place, but we only know of these lynchings because of newspaper clippings, right? So that's what To be Wells did. That's what Monroe work did. These are two individuals before the 20th century that researched lynchings in terms of the number and the locations in their own way. But so within the 30-year period, it's so common that it's roughly about 180, 190 lynchings were happening every year. So this is where the famous image of the NAACP office in Manhattan. They hang out a flag every day because you could count on somebody was lynched that day or at least the next. So that's lynchings. Number five is gun violence. And why I put gun violence is there is because while, of course, it happens, the onus is not on these perpetrators that engage on it. It's the fact that with all this data and all of this capability to stop crime, somehow they can never stop these actions. So some people believe that gun violence is allowed to happen. So in rural Indiana, gun violence can take place in a traditional way in terms of murder, but also gun violence takes place in terms of suicides, right, Mm -hmm. or in terms of accidental shootings. But in urban places, when we get into non-white populations, it's labeled as a aspect of criminal activity. But what I'm saying is that they're allowed to happen, right, regardless of advancement and regardless of a decrease in crime, There seems to be no ability and no desire to trace bullets and trace guns, trace sales of guns, trace the movement of guns. And it's not because of law enforcement. There's legislation that even prevents law enforcement from even creating a searchable database and a searchable file system. So, for example, the ATF, alcohol, tobacco and firearms, they literally are working with paper that's in files that are in freight cars out in the parking lot right, because they cannot have a searchable database system by law.
0: So who benefits from the lack of legislation and policy to regulate gun violence?
1: I have no idea in that regards, but what we do know is it allows communities of all types to still have terror, right, because there's no safety that's provided. So you can't call 911 because nobody's coming and nobody cares to come and nobody's going to do an investigation, right? Right. And so gun violence is number five. Number six is state executions. And so this comes back to the 1862 Dakota Wars and 1918 Praveena massacre that I mentioned, where it's officially done. And so could they be lynchings? Yes, they could. But they also could be state executions. And we still know that public executions are a thing. When they do happen, there's still a desire to watch them or see them, even though the numbers are less than what they were in the 60s. Number seven is police killings. So from 2013 to 2019, what's estimated is something like 7,700 and something people who have been shot by police, not killed by police, because people are killed by police in a number of other ways. You know, as we see with what happened with George Floyd, with the knee, chokehold with Eric Garner, with others. You know, for example, there's an 84 year old black woman's case in Chicago in 2019, where she was sleeping in a car in a high speed chase going after a suspected quote unquote criminal. They run into her car and totals it with her in it and she dies. So these are 7,765 police shootings. Amongst people who are on the abolition side, the fear is moving towards a Brazil-like environment. There, there's an official shoot-to-kill policy, and they actually go to kill with pre-crime. So they look at a list who committed a crime beforehand, go find them regardless of whether they're committing an act or not, and take them out.
0: So it's like state-sanctioned executions before the... Trial, the jury, the judge.
1: Yes. So that gets into eight, and that's recreational murder. So this is killing people just for fun, and this is different than lynching. So I remember when afman Arbery's case became more known, people called it a lynching, and I remember lynchings are done for the position of race, a cause, a tradition. And specifically the Black people, the bodies are somehow going to be used as some type of promotion, right? They're going to display it, you know, do something, right? In this case, if if their camera footage that they were taking of the act that they were performing was never presented to the public and they were never caught, he just would have been dead on the ground. So there was never going to be like this sense of, you know, hey, Black people, stay in your place. This was just to kill somebody for fun based upon clearly their race. And so Ahmaud Arbery, I would say, is more recreational murder. Then that gets to nine, and that's hunting. Not necessarily for fun, but just for the purpose of a specific person needs to be eliminated. And so one of the classic cases that has been labeled a lynching, is in 1981, Mobile, Alabama with Michael Donald. The young black man was just walking down the street when members of the United Klan of America decided to retaliate because uh, a white police officer had been killed in Birmingham. The trial had moved from Birmingham to Mobile, but predominantly black jury decided as the outcome that the suspected murderer didn't murder you know, it was manslaughter, right? It was a firefight between the police officer and a bank robber. Benny Jack Hayes, who was the leader of the United Klan of America, the largest clan at the time, says reportedly through some radio show, if a black man can get away with killing a white man, we ought to be able to get away with killing a black man. And so this prompted two listeners to then go just randomly find somebody. And Michael Donald was who they found. That was a hunt. We don't know how many of those really happen. Just like recreational murders, we don't really know how many of those happen, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the times when we find a body on the side of a road, who knows? During this time of COVID-19, there's been the hangings of individuals found in certain places. We don't know, right? These are cases in which maybe they're lynching, maybe they're recreational murders, maybe they're just the byproduct of someone that was hunted. Some of the missing persons cases could be hunting. Then that gets us to ethnic cleansing, number 10. And that is where we have to invoke the history of indigenous folk within the United States. Many of them were killed, and not just by official military or colonial militia, but by settlers who were quote unquote defending their property. And that was ethnic cleansing. But we also see it in the present day where just in one city alone, Rio in 2019, had something like 5,000 police killings. One city, one year. Majority of people who are dying from the shoot to kill policies are a lot of times Afro-Brazilian, right? One city, one year, they almost outdo the United States total number of lynching. They're only short by two. So the numbers of just police killings in Brazil are, you know, of of a ridiculous number. And then that finally gets me to number 11, which is race war. And we just haven't seen that, but we know that there's literature that wants it, calls for it, there's readers of it. The 1973 novel, Camp of Saints, by Jean Raspail, talking about the concerns of immigration in Europe and the camp is the camp of the last few pure Europeans that defend the future of Europe against the ever coming in wave of immigrants from Somalia and Algeria and they're successful. And then we have 1978 the Turner Diaries by William Luther Pierce under the pseudonym Andrew McDonald. And the book concludes with this rope day where once they have retaken the United States to create a new country, they'll line the city streetlights with the hanging bodies of all the black victims and their supporters and Jews. So while we have not historically, completely have seen race wars, we've definitely in terms of history have seen ethnic cleansing. You know, with Rwanda, You know, whether it's Pol Pot in Southern Asia, you know, we have seen these things. And so this, I think, is my way of trying to say to people, there's something to be concerned about and there's something to be concerned about far more than lynching. Lynching is not the worst thing that could happen. And there are other things that society can move towards Mm -hmm. or has already moved towards and we're not paying attention, which is a scary thing to come to understand.
0: I'm trying to visualize the continuum and it seems that one clear movement is number another maybe is intent would you say
1: that's right absolutely so think of it as regardless of how horrible coups and massacres are the intent is not to get rid of the entire population it's just to send a wholesale message so Tulsa wasn't about killing every black person alive and it wasn't about calling for a need to kill every black person in Oklahoma it was about telling this group of Black people to stay in your space, whereas after cleansing, it's about total elimination. And so that's why they're on these two opposing ends. On one end, you have a large-scale killing for a message. On the other end, you have wholesale killing, period.
0: So you've explored all the different examples of racial violence on the continuum. Which of those forms are most common in the United States? How has the pattern changed and increased or decreased?
1: Yeah, so I think what's... Most common is probably in the middle. In the middle of those 11 examples are lynch, lynchings, gun violence, state executions, and police killings. So let's try to use and identify lynchings as a sort of a basis to think about patterns. Okay. Um, because that also kind of gives a sense of how they are a specific type of violence as opposed to something that can just be labeled onto anything, right? Tony Dean and Beck, three researchers in 1996, look at lynching and finds a pattern when looking at the geographic location and the spatiality of lynchings, where they happen and how they influence other places. And they come up with two concepts of what the lynchings were done for. They were done for deterrence and they were done for contagion. So deterrence is in-city action to prevent the population from getting out of line, stay in your place, right? So you kill one person, you hang their body up with a sign, you make sure everybody's present, that deteriorates future behavior. And the future behavior is not about the, about a crime because as we know, most cases of lynchings, there was maybe sometimes a, an alleged sexual assault, but most times they were all labor disputes. Fair pay, pay for labor performed production of crops and not receiving the fair pay and the dispute took place. Wow. It wasn't like everybody was getting lynched. It was specific people at specific moments for, for specific reasons. And that's why Tone, Dean and Beck and looking and finding this pattern tells us there's, there's a logic. And so this also says that lynchings are not mobs. They're planned, they're thought out. And so deterrence. Contagion is about, preventing the spread. If you commit a lynching here in, let's say, Bloomington or in Indianapolis, it prevents the need for a lynching to happen in Louisville because news will travel down. So this is why in the South, you don't see lynchings everywhere. When you look at a large map, you see a concentration of lynchings in the South, but when you get zoom in closer and closer, it's not like they're happening in every single city. It's not like they're happening every single year. Deterrence and contagion tells us one type of pattern.
0: It's almost as if lynchings are a measure of where black progress may be.
1: It could be, right? But remember on an individual basis. If we allow this one individual to continue to move around and do what they're doing, they're gonna inspire other individuals to move around and do similar things. Prior to this, Beck and Tony look at crop production and they notice in different places with different crops, either the lynchings occurred in season during the labor, so they will lynch somebody to get keep people working. When you jump to another crop like tobacco, you may see lynching out of season. So they figure tobacco laborers had more time to organize a union off season because of how difficult It is to harvest that crop. You know, you may still be working on it, even though sundown has begun. Whereas cotton, sun goes down, you can meet with your co-workers and be disgruntled and begin to develop some type of union. Mm -hmm. So that's the second pattern. The third pattern that we see with racial massacres and coups is political influence and social attainment. So when we think about Tulsa, when we think about Atlanta, when we think about Wilmington, we see these things happen when there's been a growth and so there's a response to growth and so those are the patterns that we see with certain cases of racial violence
0: what are more contemporary examples of maybe not necessarily lynchings but racial violence to accomplish those same things prevent labor organization deter black progress and political influence?
1: We don't, we don't see it to that degree because we also have to remember that by the fifties, lynching starts to become not undesired, but not popular because you have the Emmett Till case and the Emmett Till case is on TV. Although people got off, they were still embarrassed. And so there wasn't any longer just, you can kill somebody at the local level and get it erased or ignored, it was not gonna be national attention. And so there was then a greater desire to probably do some of these acts internally. So that's where recreational murder and hunting probably started to increase. We think about the killing of the three civil rights workers, Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney, that was clearly not a lynching, right? They weren't gonna display the body. They were hopefully going, you know, disposed of the body, but that was a hunt to prevent these freedom writers coming down and helping black people to vote in the south so tv disrupts the activity of lynching specifically of black people and open the doorway for other types of violence to become more common because you can do that under the veil of the night but also undercover and no more fanfare there's no more postcards there's no more of these other things that were part of the entertainment spectacle so
0: emmett till's case sort of introduced shame and then brought the white supremacist desire to kill and control black people underground, but did not wipe it out.
1: That's my argument. right? Gotcha. Some other people's argument also is that you can probably look at the time when a lot more lynchings decrease and maybe public executions increase there was more, a lot more people who were black that were being sort of railroaded into public executions and people started to attend public executions as entertainment. But I'm cautious of that because did the number really decrease or did we just not have enough information knowledge about how many were happening? Gotcha. If, if you know what I mean, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so if we're going just simply off the numbers, then yes, I think that there may be a relationship. No one has completely proven that it has just turned into public execution. But the problem is, is that you're taking only the number that we know of and not the number that could be. And also you're only looking at the lynchings of black people. Right. And so those two things don't quite then match up with this potential rise of public executions.
0: To kind of tie it back into the theme, how does racial violence negate democracy, and specifically in America, and to kind of expand that a little, what I've heard from other people is by our contemporary standards, America wouldn't be considered a democracy for most of its history.
1: Yeah, I think in thinking about that question, and also thinking about the frequency of racial violence, then you kind of see that either it completely disrupts it, or it's a fundamental part of the United States. So if you think about the earliest case of a riot, racial riot, 1829 Cincinnati, then you have 1835 snow riots in New York, and then you have 1836, you're back to Cincinnati with another one, 1841. In 1855, you have Bloody Monday, which is on ethnic Germans in Louisville. Then you have 1863, the New York draft riots, which were Irish dissenters on the Black population. But you also have Detroit race riot similarly around the draft during the same year. 1866, you have the New Orleans massacre, the Memphis riots on Irish and black people. 1871, Los Angeles, Chinese, Americans are the target. 1885, Rock Springs, Wyoming. 1891, you got New Orleans, anti-Italian. 1898, you have Wilmington, 1906, Atlanta. Also 1906, you have the Billingham anti-East Indian riots. You have 1910, the Slocum, Texas massacre of hundred, 1917, you have East St. Louis riots. Also that same year, you have Chesterton, Pennsylvania, as well as Lexington, Kentucky riots. And then 1919 you have red summer. And that's a misnomer because there was at least some perform of racial violence that happened on black people specifically from January to November. So it wasn't just summer, even though Chicago race riot during that year was the most known. But the biggest and worst one of the Red Summer is Elaine, Arkansas massacre of 237 farmers, all in three days. And then 1921, you have Tulsa, 1930, you have Watsonville, California, riot on on Filipino populations. It's not until you get to 1935 Harlem that you actually see then what's known as the modern riot, where it's a population internally begins to uh, articulate their their dissent on property. So it's a fundamental part. I know that was an onslaught of like years, and that's not even including lynching numbers, right? In time periods. It's either they tanks and strangle democracy. They're happening so frequently, there's never a stability, uh, or they're a fundamental part of United States-based democracy. If you're saying that, they're completely part of United States-based democracy, then that begs the question, what is democracy in the United States?
0: Thanks so much to Dr. Mowat for his detailed discussion of racial violence of the past, present, and future. The music for the intro and outro is Moonrise by Chad Crouch, provided by freemusicarchive.org under a non-commercial license. Thanks so much for listening. This has been an episode of Democracy, a podcast by Themester.